Welcome. I'm Father Mitch Packle. Welcome to Scripture and Tradition. And also welcome to our first big live studio audience in a while. Uh, I noticed on some of the other networks, we're not the only show to also have live audiences. It's everybody's sort of coming back now to it. And it's just a delight to have all of you with us from Albuquerque and Georgia and California, uh, all sorts of places. And of course, we'd love to have you be part of this show. Uh, you can do that at home by adding your questions and comments. You can call during the live broadcast, which is on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And the phone number, if you are in North America, is 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are not in North America, you can still call, but you have to call country code 1, area code 205-271-2960. You can also send us your questions and comments via email by writing to Scripture and Tradition at EWTN.com or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now, today we are going to continue looking at the wedding feast of Cana. And we will see how we can bring our problems, the problems we have in life, to Jesus, just as the Blessed Virgin Mary did. But also learn to leave the solutions to those problems in His hands without necessarily telling Him too much of how to fix the problem. It's one of the advantages of being God. He knows more than we do. Now, we are still going through my book called Praying the Gospels. Jesus launches his public ministry. You can order it at EWTNRC.com. Uh, it is item number um, 52687. 52687. All right. So in this section on the wedding feast, of Cana. This is chapter 4 of my book. We are dealing with John chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. And in this second meditation on John 2, we're going to start off with chapter 2 verse 3 where it says, When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. They have no wine. Now, other than this little note, the Blessed Virgin Mary is simply one of the other guests. She's one guest among many. Um, this is something that we should pay attention to um, because this then becomes the point of attention at this wedding feast in Cana. Um, she becomes very aware of this problem. The wine is no longer flowing easily. The sort of rationing, must have been rationing it out. And she's concerned about the needs of others. In this case, the embarrassment of the hosts. You know, in the Middle East, people are very generous in their hospitality. They're very famous for that. And one of the last things they want to do is to run out of food. There are a lot of cultures like that. You go to a lot of societies, especially when people tend to be a little more poor. And as somebody said to about my mother's cooking, does she cook Polish style? I said, well, yeah. No, what I mean by that is three times as much as everybody can eat. You know, that's the way a lot of people cook, you know, when you get together. Um, and as Middle Easterners, Eastern Europeans, Western people in general, a lot of people in this country too. 
And she doesn't go up to the hosts. She doesn't consult with them. Um, that would have been an act, extra embarrassment to them, frankly. Instead, she goes to Jesus and consults with him and simply states the problem, they have no wine. Now, this is something that we should do. Try to imagine being in this scene. What would the Blessed Mother's facial expression be? How would you imagine it? How would you think of her looking? And also, pay attention to the way that she is alert to the needs of other people at the wedding feast. And she is very ready to bring those needs directly to her son, Jesus. So this is uh, something uh, that is very characteristic of her. But then we also have to ask ourselves, how attentive are we to the needs of the folks around us? Are we just in our own little world where we want to pay attention to what we want? Or do we also pay attention to the needs of the people around us? And is it something then when you say, well, I, I'll, I'll see what I can do about it, but I don't want to bother Jesus. Um, that's not necessarily what he would like. You know, it's very important for us to bring it to him. Just because we think a certain need is small doesn't mean that he thinks it's too small. Remember, he taught us to pray for our daily bread. Otherwise, a small issue, but he thinks it's significant enough. And here's another thing we have to ask, because I come, I come across this a lot. When people do bring a problem to our Lord, they very frequently come to him with a description of how he should fix it. A lot of times we want to tell the good Lord, well, this is the way you, what you need to do. You just get this, this, and this, and get all these things. And we want to tell him how to run things. You know, I don't think that's a good idea. I, I, I'm sure I tried many times. And you know, I've just given up on trying to be the scenery director for how God should answer prayers. I'm going to let the Lord do it His way. And that's very important. And then we also have to pay attention to the disposition that we have when we present our needs before the Lord. Um, one of the things we have to ask, why do I want to bring to him? What motivates me to bring something to him? Do I want people to think, oh, uh, he's really good at praying or, you know, that, that he'll be shown to be a really good guy and all that? Or, or do you really focus on the needs of the other people and not worry about how, what they think of you, but you worry about them? That needs to be part of the disposition that we have. And something else you may want to do, think back on times that you asked our Lord for certain petitions, for people who were sick, or for certain needs. Um, you know, this is something that we have to reflect on for two reasons. One, we want to make sure that we remain grateful and not take it for granted. Now, that's why wise parents expect to feed their kids and the kids expect to get food from their parents. But it is always a wise thing to teach them to say, please, when they ask for something, and thank you when they get it. And we have to be that same way with our Lord, you know, asking Him, but also thanking for those favors. But then something else that we have to consider. 
How did the Lord bring about the answer? Was it the way I thought? Quite frankly, I've been amazed at the various times our Lord has answered prayer. But also I'm amazed because not just that He answered the need, but how He did it in a way that took care of more than the problems I saw. It's more than what I know about. And this is a very important thing for us to consider. Secondly, actually thirdly, something else that we should think about is the timing of the Lord's answer. There have been any number of times I wanted our Lord to answer something right away. In fact, I remember one time when I was teaching high school in Cincinnati back in uh, about, oh, 73, 74, right in that, that time. And as I was teaching, you know, I, we were asking for some things. We were praying for certain answers. And it was just taking forever to, to, to get to that point where it seemed that the Lord was going to answer. And then in the middle of that, actually more toward the end of the process, it took me a while to get this, but it became clear to me that it wasn't just that the Lord is playing with us or something or making us wait to make us suffer or something. It's rather that in the process of praying and spending more time in prayer, it became clear that it wasn't just about getting the right answer. It was also about spending time with the Lord. Sometimes our Lord seems to delay an answer because He wants us to understand more deeply who He is, not just get stuff and then move on to the next issue. He wants us to get to know Him and for Him to get to know us. Part of the issue of our prayer is to form a proper relationship with God and not just to take care of the problems. This is very important. And yet at the same time, the timing of the answer frequently works out better than what I thought would have been the quicker thing to do and the more urgent. Sometimes I wasn't ready for the answer. And other times the people I've prayed for were not ready for the answer either. There were other things that had to go on. And that's some of the reasons that when we are reflecting on this mystery of God answering our petitions, but doing it in His way, in His timing, there are a lot of considerations we don't have. It's not at all unlike parents who don't always give their children everything they ask for at the time they ask it because sometimes they're not ready for it. You know, my brother uh, used to ride on my motorcycle with me. He was uh, three, four years old at the time. And of course, he wanted to have a motorcycle. He wasn't ready for it yet. He was too small. And he had to, also he needed to be old enough to get a license. You know, this is a big factor. So these are some of the things that one has to remember from natural life and we also have to see that this applies to the supernatural. Something that you may want to try, and, and this is part of the style of prayer I've been encouraging, not only in this book, but in 
you know, the, the last book that we covered, How to Listen When God is Speaking, that, that book set out the principles that I know about in prayer, what little I know, put in that book. But this present book, you know, Christ Launches His Ministry, is about applying some of those principles. So in this case, one of the ways that I'm going to recommend that you pray about this scene is first to imagine yourself speaking to Jesus about the prayers He has already answered for you. What are some of the prayers that He has answered? Talk to Him about the way He answered it and ask Him, Lord, teach me your deeper wisdom about the way you choose to answer rather than my plans for answering my issues. There, one of the things you may expect is that our Lord looks at wider range of issues than we do. Even when somebody dies, you know, we're praying for somebody to die, and we sometimes want to ask, Lord, why did you let that person die? And this is something that bothers a lot of us, you know, when that happens, because we don't want them to suffer, we don't want them to die, we love having them around, but we also have to talk to our Lord about that, because especially when somebody dies, that is the second most important moment of that person's life. The most important moment of existence is when you're conceived, because that's when you start. But your death, whether it's a long life or a short life, your death is where your life comes together. This is where you stand before God with who you are and what you've got. And so it's about you. And our Lord, well, if we talk to Him about how He answered some of our prayers in not saving somebody from death, one of the things that we may want to discuss is why was it so important for that person? Because that's the most important person involved in that person's death. We are only secondarily involved. We want to understand that. And we may want to ask and talk to him about what kind of trust do you want from me? What kind of you know, confidence do you expect from me? And it may be a wider kind of confidence, not only confidence that he answers our prayers, but also confidence that the way he answers it is dealing with a wider approach, a wider set of issues than I can begin to understand. And that would be uh, a very good way to pray. Now, what I would also recommend is that you speak with Our Lady. Imagine standing with her and ask her about what it was like to pose to Jesus this problem, they have no wine. And at the end of this prayer, I recommend that you finish your conversation with the Blessed Mother by praying a Hail Mary, and then end your prayer to Jesus with the Our Father, especially focusing on those petitions such as, Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. Focus on those things uh, in the prayer. And we'll take a little break here and continue with our next meditation from this chapter. So please stay with us.
Right, we are now beginning the next meditation, which is about Jesus' response to his mother. And notice how he says to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. This is John chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And the literal translation of the Greek here is what to me and to you. We oftentimes add, what does it have to do? Because we don't say that phrase in English. Um, it's an elliptical sentence in, in Hebrew. And it's used elsewhere in the Bible. Um, for instance, in Judges 11, verse 12, um, when uh, Jephthah uh, sends a message to his Ammonite enemies, it says, uh, the, the English translation says, uh, what have you against me? Literally, it's, it's what to me and to you. Same thing as in the gospel. And we see that also show up as a phrase in 1 Kings 17, verse 18, and 2 Chronicles 35, verse 21. So it, it's a type of phrase that shows up a number of times in the Old Testament. So it's, it's why the Lord uses it. It was idiomatic. And then we also see that the demons use that expression. For instance, when the man who is possessed by a demon in the synagogue in Mark 1.24, uh, the demon speaks up and says, what to me and to you? It's the same phrase. Also the same in Mark chapter 5, verse 7. So it's a fairly common idiom. And... Um, it shows up in a uh, few other cases like 2 Kings 3.13 and Hosea 14.8. It, it, it's something that can mean hostility. It has that nuance in those passages like Judges 11, 1 Kings 17, and 2 Chronicles 35. There's hostility sometimes. But... This, it's also sometimes used um, when it doesn't concern a person. You know, it doesn't matter to a person. Um, and uh, that's disengaged with them. Or if it's unimportant to either one, that would be in 2 Samuel 16, verse 10, when the, the king said, what to me and to you, sons of Zeruiah. Zeruiah was uh, King David's sister, and the sons of Zeruiah were his nephews. So, um, you know, and it's talking about uh, uh, cursing uh, David because there was a guy who was cursing David. And he said, what, what's it to me and to you? Because his nephews wanted to cut the guy's head off for cursing David. But David says, no, leave it alone. Now, this meaning that it's not of particular importance to, to the parties involved may be what our Lord means here, that their lack of wine is not that important, given that he says, my hour has not yet come. Now he's speaking to Our Lady about his hour, and it's not yet here. This is uh, very important. He says that phrase, my hour has not yet come, in other places. For instance, in John chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus said, my hour has not yet come, okay? And also John mentions it that uh, in same chapter, uh, John 7, verse 30, when they tried to arrest Jesus, but no one 
was able to lay hands on him because his hour had not yet come. And this is also again in John 8, verse 20. Uh, he was preaching in the treasury of the temple, but no one laid hands on him. They didn't arrest him because his hour had not yet come. This is something repeated. Obviously, very important, very important to our Lord, this hour. What does the hour mean? Because that's key to understanding his response to the Blessed Mother. And we see that the issue of the hour is said to have arrived right before Jesus is crucified. So, for instance, in John chapter 12, beginning with verse 23, the Lord said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. But now my soul is troubled and, what, troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Notice how many times in that passage the Lord says that his hour has come. When is this? This is on Palm Sunday as he comes into Jerusalem in triumph. And then as he begins the Last Supper in John chapter 13, verse 1. So this would have been on Thursday, that, that first passage in John 12 is from Palm Sunday. Now in John 13 verse 1 it says, Now before the festival of the Passover Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. This hour clearly refers to the hour of Christ's death. This is a key to understanding that phrase. So when our Lord Jesus informs his mother that her statement of the lack of wine implies a request that will initiate his hour, his hour will begin from that point on. It means that this is going to be leading towards his death. Now, it would be the third year. Remember, John chapter 2 occurs at right before the first Passover of the gospel. John chapter 6 is at the second Passover. And then John 12 and 13 is at the third Passover. So the hour begins just before that first Passover. It will come to its fulfillment at the third Passover of Christ's public ministry. Notice, the Blessed Mother does not tell Jesus what to do. She simply tells the servants to obey Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. This indicates how she herself has great trust in the Father's will regarding the hour. She may not understand it fully, but she knows that she's going to trust 
the, the, the Father will take care of this and that Jesus will take care of it. And when she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you, she is giving us a model for how to pray that we want to trust whatever God says. And I think that this is a very important parallel to what God the Father had said at the transfiguration. Over in Mark 9, verse 7, said, This is my beloved son, listen to him. So you have his mother saying, do whatever he tells you, and his father saying, listen to him. We each need to hear the words of his father and his mother and obey Christ and do as he says. So again, what I would recommend that you do is imagine yourself standing near the Blessed Mother and Jesus. Picture yourself being there and you overhear their conversation and consider how they both seek to do the Father's will, both Jesus and His Blessed Mother. And this would lead to His dying in order to redeem the world. In some way that we don't fully understand, doing this first miracle initiates that hour. It's something that only Jesus fully understands. The Blessed Mother doesn't seem to understand fully what it means, but she simply tells the servants to do whatever Jesus tells them. She doesn't insist on her will. I can imagine Mrs. Pack was saying, didn't I tell you to get this done now? I can hear that voice, but that's not what our Blessed Mother does. She knows there's something bigger at stake here. And we have to ask ourselves, how open am I to the way God wants to answer my petitions? How open am I to doing His will? Do I share Jesus' attitude by which He taught us to say, Thy will be done to His heavenly Father? Do I share that? And do I share the Blessed Mother's willingness to do whatever the Lord wills. Try to picture yourself speaking to the Blessed Mother and talk about Jesus' words, what to me and to you. How would you understand that? And how would you understand my hour has not yet come? What do you think may have gone on in her mind? And what would she say to you about your attitude toward making petitions to Jesus? and to listening to his answers. Just conclude with a Hail Mary and try to grow in imagining what it would be like to be there and then speak to Jesus about what it means that his hour is there and what would he say to you about his attitude to the Father's will in regard to your petitions. And again, conclude with an Our Father. This will help to deal with some of the issues you may have in understanding how to pray. Okay? All right. We will continue on next week with a couple more meditations on the wedding feast of Cana. But now what we'd like to do is take a look at some of your emails. Um, uh, here's an interesting email, a phrase I've never heard. Father Mitch, my daughter's family are Christers. I let's see what is that? meaning. Aha, uh-huh. they attend mass basically only at Christmas and Easter. I've never heard that word, Christers. <laughs> When I visited them at Easter and went with them to Mass, they all received communion. I said nothing then, but later privately reminded the 18 and the 24-year-old that they had an obligation to attend Mass every Sunday. What is the best way to handle this problem? CM. Well, CM, I think you did, sounds like you did all right. It's very important to 
you know, you know, probably not to make a big scene. If you think that a big scene would help, maybe, but you're not their mom, apparently. And I wouldn't start, um, uh, I, I wouldn't start that, you know, talking about uh, you know, a big scene on this. Do it privately and explain to them this is one of the commandments to keep holy the Sabbath. And the church continues that. So this is something that uh, you, I think you did well. And always be ready to give more reason why, for instance, um, you know, God gives you existence. You have, if you live in the United States, your existence is probably fairly good compared to most other places in the world. And, you know, when you think the pharaohs never had air conditioning or interior heat, so we're doing well. They had more jewels, but we're doing very well. And even with inflation, we're still doing well. And to give thanks to God for what he's given you is a good thing to mention to these young people. Okay? All right. We have a caller. Hello, Anthony. Hello, Father Mitch. How are you today? Fine. Where are you calling from? Cocoa Beach, Florida, sir. Wonderful. And what's your question? Well, I, I'm getting mixed readings um, with this heated debate about abortion. Mm -hmm. but, uh, my wife and I are, got confused. Uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, said, I believe, that uh, he did not believe that life began at, at conception. So I was just trying to get your, your briefly thoughts on sure. uh, when, when life begins. And, and my wife and I believe it begins at conception. Yeah. Um, other people don't. And I was right. wondering what you think when a baby gains his soul. Anthony, let me first of all make a slight correction about what St. Thomas spoke about. He didn't say that life doesn't begin at conception. He didn't say that, did he? He said that he didn't think the rational soul began at conception. Do you know what he means by that distinction? No idea. Okay. He would have been quite aware, as anybody must be aware, that life begins at conception. But the existence of the rational soul, that is, a soul that is capable of thought, he believed began a few months later. And in fact, he's probably close to right in that the rational, uh, for instance, uh, even by three months, there are indications that a child in the womb is having dreams. They see the kind of rapid eye movement that, show, that occurs in dreaming and that they can apparently have thoughts. That is a function of a rational mind. And of course, that rational mind continues to develop over the years. Um, uh, I take it you're over 25 years old. Just briefly. Just briefly. Did your insurance go down when you turned 25? It went up. All right. What did, hey, what, what kind of driving record do you have? No, not only. No, no, it's the, uh, it's the uh, hurricane insurance. Oh, oh, hurricane insurance. But driving insurance would oh, go no, down no. for 25-year-olds. Yes. yes, it went down. Because that is the point at which the brain finally finishes growing. The cerebral cortex continues to grow until about 25, and that's the part of the brain in which people learn how to make judgments, judgment calls. So that, that's why, you know, on a physical basis, your insurance goes down when you're 25. Right. You are a better driver. You judge things better uh, as opposed to some 16-year-olds who might say something along the lines, hold my beer, watch this. No, that, that's not good judgment, especially when you're driving. And so this is something that, um, you know, your, your brain continues to develop. 
And that's where the rational soul develops. And that's what he thought, that when the brain was large enough for there to be brain activity and the activity of thoughts, that's when the rational soul. But he never advocated taking the life before that point. Same is true with St. Augustine. No theologian and none of the fathers of the church ever believed that the rational soul began at conception, but they always insisted on defending life from conception because even though there's not a rational soul that can have human thoughts, there is a, an animal soul, as they might call it, or an irrational soul, and it is a human being. Every bit of that person's DNA is fully present at the moment the sperm fertilizes the egg. They won't get more DNA. They won't lose DNA. It's all there right then. And that person comes into existence. So that's why the church, you know, doesn't teach that the rational soul is at conception but the life must be protected from conception because it has that rational soul in potentia. That is, it has the potential for it. It will grow towards that rational soul. It will never grow into a monkey brain. It will never grow into a dog brain or a pig brain. Even if the kid eats like a pig, they will never have a pig brain. It'll be a human brain. And that's why that potency, that potential is there at conception and will only develop into a fully human brain. Does that help, Anthony? Yeah, thank you for taking my call, and we will pray for you, Father Mitch. Thank you. And, uh... I need it. I need that prayer. also need to take a break. We'll be back in just a minute, so please stay with us with more questions and comments from you. So we have our studio audience here, and we are going to go to a question from our audience. Ma'am, where are you from? I'm from Tyrone, Georgia. Good to have you here. Welcome. And your question? Thank you for taking my question, sure. Father Mitch. It's a trivia question. Was Joseph at the wedding of Cana? Zero indication that he was still alive. Very doubtful that he was present there. Um, he's not mentioned as having died, but he's not mentioned as being alive. And given the way that our Lord seems to be taking care of Our Lady, it's, it's pretty much uh, be assumed that he already passed away. Okay? <laughs> Ma'am, where are you from? I'm also from uh, St. Matthew in Tyrone, Georgia. Nice, nice. And your question? Uh, how old do you think Jesus was when he realized that he was divine? Here's something to keep in mind. His awareness of divinity would have been there from the, pre from the moment of conception, that he had an infinite divine mind. It's not that he ceased knowing everything. And he's well, he certainly speaks of that awareness in, when he's 12, but, you know, that, you know, in terms of his divine nature, he would have known it. He never would have not known it. Okay? Thank you. Sure. And, sir, where are you from? I'm also from Tyrone, Georgia, in St. Matthews. Good to have you. Thank you. My question is this. 
Our Lady at Fatima told the children, pray for Russia. Yeah. While we pray for Ukraine today, should mm -hmm. we not also be praying for the conversion of Russia and Putin and the Kremlin and the oligarchs and all of those that are, the, are so oppressive? Absolutely. Absolutely, we should be praying for them. Um, this is, uh, you know, we're not, I hope people are not trying to pray for a military success. This, this is an unjust war. And I recently heard that one of the things being said on some of Russian television is that they want to eradicate Ukrainian identity. We don't want to pray for the success of that. We want the Ukrainian people are distinctive. Their language is close to Russian, but they have a distinctive culture. And they've already suffered horribly at the hands of Russia. Under the communists, the uh, uh, Lenin and later again Stalin starved over six million Ukrainian farmers to death. They took all of their crops and their seed grain, confiscated it and sold it for cash to the Western countries, and everybody was left to starve. And the reason was they were private farmers who didn't want to give up their uh, private farms, and this was a way to force them onto collective farms owned by the state, and they died. When women and children, everybody, this is horrible suffering, and now they're suffering again. Not so much for communism, I don't think that's what's motivating Putin, but the kind of the ends justifying the means, morality is in his mind still. That's how communist thinks, and he still thinks that way. Whatever it takes to get his goal, his goal is nationalistic. This is uh, very, very important. So um, you have to go there. And your question? I'm from Maryland, visiting my daughter here in Georgia. Uh, Father, we know as Catholics that at the consecration, the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. Yes. Who, what changes at that precise moment? Who changes this bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ? The Holy Spirit coming down by the power of Christ's words. This is my body. This is the cup of my blood. That's what changes it. Okay? So it's, it's what God is doing through a priest, but it's God's action. Okay? I need to take a quick little break. I'll be back in just a moment, so please stay with us. Sorry I had to take that little extra break, but the battery ran out. So <laughs> I think it was sitting on one of those ships a little too long off the coast of California. So at any rate, at any rate, uh, your, your, the question that we just had about when and who is, makes the difference in the Eucharist, the, the breadness of the bread is transformed and tr uh, into Christ. And the wineness of the wine is transformed into Christ. Notice how the priest extends his hands and calls down the Holy Spirit. That's who makes the change. But it's through the priest laying out his hands. And then the priest says the words, this is my body. This is the chalice of my blood. 
Those are the words of Christ that he commanded us to repeat. And that word of God that made creation as well as this, um, uh, the action of the Holy Spirit, that's what does this. And then um, another email here. Hi, Father Mitch. The wedding at Cain is my most quoted mystery. I frequently tell my son, if Jesus listened to his mother, you should listen to yours. Wait a minute now. You've just gone one step too far. Uh, your son should listen to you. All right. Mrs. Packwell would agree with you on that. And she, did, she said to me toward the end of her life, I don't care who ordained you or how old you are. I'm still your mother. Crack. <laughs> Love tap. But uh, yes, uh, this is um, very much to do with Jesus, Jesus said. But, um, you know, he did it voluntarily. She, she still said, do whatever he tells you. So watch how you're using this. I don't want you to start taking the Bible out of context, you know. Uh, then your son might try to take things out of context. And I hope he's older than 11. All right. Again, let us pray for the people of Ukraine. We have this Ukrainian Greek Catholic icon of Our Lady of Fatima. And the last question is helpful. Lord, we praise you and bless you for sending your blessed mother. And dearest Mother Mary, it was your icon that was placed into the waters of the river in Ukraine before the king and his queen became Christian. And we ask that you intercede for the people of Ukraine. Bring them peace. We consecrate Ukraine and Russia to you. Bring peace to the people of Ukraine and to the people of Russia. Peace in their hearts and truth and justice in their relations. May Almighty God bless all of you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And we can bring you this program because it's brought to you by you, keeping us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill. Thank you for your support, and God bless you all.